Hi everyone and welcome back to the Reading Materials podcast. My name is Lucia and I'm joined by my two friends Maria and Jess and we are making our way through the A Court of Thorns and Roses series by Sarah J Maas and today's episode is going to be about the second quarter of A Court of Wings and Ruin. Today we'll be giving spoilers for the first two books and the third book up to chapter 40. And in case anyone has forgotten or is just joining us for the first time, Jess, could you tell us briefly the plot so far of this book? So what has happened so far has been Fair has kind of taken down the spring court from within. A bit of chaos there on her way out. She flees with Lucien in tow and they kind of get chased by Lucien's brothers as they cross the autumn court. Then it's mostly just like setting up political tensions and looking forward to the next se- section of the book. We've been kind of making our way through the book, not really chapter by chapter, but kind of talking about like main events. So maybe we can get started with Nesta and Elaine and their kind of character progression. So For those who don't remember, Nesta and Elaine are Feyre's older sisters, and at the end of book two, which was A Court of Mist and Fury, they were turned into High Fey against their will by the King of Highburn. And in the first 20 chapters of A Court of Wings and Ruin, they didn't really do much. They are in the Night Court and not really doing very well in terms of coming to terms with what happened to them. So, Maria, tell us a bit about Nesta in this part of the book. What's she been up to? And So, in this quarter of the book, Nesta has begun, well, she's accepted a little bit more than originally um, her circumstances. And she's starting to explore powers that she may have that she's taken from the cauldron, kind of by force, I, she admits. And she's kind of... She's agreed to, as much as Nesta agrees to anything, she's agreed to kind of start to explore and work on them. She's kind of becoming more receptive as a person at the same time as well. It's a very slow progress with her, but she's starting to show something trackable for the first time since like, I don't know, the start of the second book, Mm -hmm. maybe. Jess, how do you like Nesta um, in this part of the book? She's pretty... um... She's kind of more harsh than ever because obviously Elaine's been, let's say, altered. So she's pretty, pretty aggressive to everyone around her, who she believes may have any sort of intentions that are not in Elaine's best interest. Yeah, she's as prickly as ever. Yeah, I find her to be a little bit confusing because it's not really clear what she's supposed to be learning with Amran. So Amran has taken it upon herself to teach Nesta some new powers so that she can help to bring down or to protect the wall, to fix the wall, so that the King of Highburn can't bring it down. And we had this kind of creepy scene with Cassian and Pharaoh when they went to the prison to speak with the bone carver. And the bone carver was all like, oh, the earth shuddered and the wind speaks her name. And he's obviously... <laughs> I thought it was really time. cool. Yeah, yeah, no, I really liked that scene. I really liked it. Like, ooh, creepy. So 
Mm-hmm. Evidently, Nesta has some kind of dark powers that scare everyone because they haven't really manifested themselves and nobody really knows what she can do. There is talk of maybe her power is death or has something to do with death, which sounds pretty epic. But how do you kind of understand that whole thing? What is she actually learning from Amran? I think that none of the the other powers are similar to Nesta's because everybody else seems to have a defined power. Mm-hmm. And Amran's has remained pretty undefined to this point too. So I think Amran is just trying to teach Nesta the like basics of like managing power in a new body, whatever, you know, just coming to terms in full circle kind of a way. And also Amran is kind of understood to, besides Riss, have the like kind of the big power that could tear apart the world. So I think they've just kind of said, you're similar enough that you're like going to have to be the teacher. But I don't like, yeah, like you, it's kind of unclear as to what specifically it's like purposefully left out so that I think we're in a bit in the dark about what Nesta can actually do. Mm. Jess, what do you think? her powers are or what is she doing i find it painfully vague like what are we supposed to take from that it's hard to know i don't know i just kind of chucked it in my mind up to strange creepy death powers that Mm. i don't know seem to intimidate Mm. everyone when they come out but also no one has any explanation Mm. yeah but don't actually do anything (laughs) yeah they just give her swirly eyes yeah that's it yeah, because I think uh, she spends time with Amran. She's kind of learning about the history of the courts. And she's supposed to join the gang when they go to the Court of Nightmares. And she's supposed to go to like a room with all these old objects and see if she can feel their power or something. It's not really, really well explained at all. But at least, you know, something is finally happening and it's nice that Nesta is cooperating a little bit, even though she's still mostly reluctant and mostly mean to everyone. But there's at least some progression. Maria, did you say Nesta Amran relationship unlikely friends question mark? Was that you? Yeah, they're just they're two kind of prickly characters. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of funny that they yeah, that like of all of the people Nesta seems to take to Amran and of all of the people Amran seems to take to Nesta. Mm -hmm. So I just, yeah, I didn't see it coming, you know, from like their characters before they were in same place, same time. But it's kind of nice that they have that unlikely friendship because they're two like kind of lonesome characters. So it's nice that they have a friend. Yeah, Jess, do you agree? I agree. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Love that. Yeah, so do I. I think... I wasn't expecting it, but it doesn't surprise me that they would, you know, work quite well together because Amran is kind of like Nesta. She's not as mean, but she also doesn't take anyone's crap and says it like it is. So it's nice that Nesta has at least someone she can spend time with since she doesn't seem to like anybody except for Elaine. Mm -hmm. And Elaine is still not doing very well. But I think by the end of this part of the book, we start to see some development and maybe a beginning of a healing journey for Elaine. So Jess, what are Elaine's new powers? Um, Elaine, it seems, is a seer, which I think means she kind of receives visions of the future that may or may not be clear or unclear. Mm -hmm. They seem to arrive in riddles, but maybe she can 
she can be coherent sometimes. And do you like that about her character? I like it, but I don't like the fact that, okay, suddenly at this, not suddenly, at the start, she's a bit of a babbling mess. And then there's one moment where she gets a bit of like conversational inclusion. And then suddenly she's like, is that what this is? And now she's suddenly a normal person who can sort of control this power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she kind of just like, it's like she got a diagnosis and then that was her solution. But it's a bit annoying that she went from being incredibly dull to being incredibly vague. (laughs) Because they're both kind of difficult to work with for everybody else. Yes. Yeah, so she was basically kind of catatonic. Sometimes she would communicate, but not so much. And then she would start talking about things that weren't actually happening. So people thought maybe she had you know, actually gone crazy um, as a result Mm. of being turned into high fae. How did you like the scene where they bring in Lucian and they say that, okay, the healer can't help her. There's obviously something going on with Elaine, but the healer doesn't know what it is because she can't, because of whatever happened in the cauldron, she can't really diagnose her. But because Lucian is Elaine's mate, that he should try. So how did you like the scene where, you know, they finally spend time together? Bit underwhelming, wasn't it? I thought the concept was a bit cringe, but you know it was a, it was a funny, awkward scene when it happened. Jess, you're very negative about this book so far. I'm I'm sensing some. The tone is different. I'm afraid. I think she's just so over dramatic in this one. For a long time, like in this okay section of chapters, we have begun to be a little less melodramatic in tone. But I don't know. <laughs> it's a great book. I love it, but. It's just a bit cringe sometimes. It is a bit like, what was Lucien going to do? Like, what was like, what was he actually going to achieve with this? Mm, like, to what end? Okay, I have confirmed. She's not okay. Yeah. Okay, how is she not okay? I don't know, because I don't know anything about medicine, because I'm not trained as a healer. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I wonder if what he was supposed to achieve is the kind of nonverbal communication that Reese and Feyre have. Because Mm. it's still not really 100% clear to me if the only reason that they can speak to each other through their minds is simply because they have that ability or if it also has something to do with the mating bond. So... Yeah, you're right. Maybe... I have no understanding of this either and it bugs me as well. Yeah. So maybe that's what he was supposed to do. But because Elaine hasn't technically accepted the mating bond it doesn't come as easily to them as it did between Feyre and Reese. That's true. Maybe is the only explanation that I can come up with. But in any case, he can't really find out what's wrong. And then he leaves because of one of Elaine's visions, which is that the sixth human queen who was presumed to be dead is actually not dead, but she's being kept prisoner by some dark sorcerer called Koshay, Koshai, I don't really know how to pronounce it. And um, mm. so Lucian has gone over to the human lands to try and find her and see if she can help in the war against Hybern. And we also have, so I already mentioned that Farron Cassian went to the Bone Carver to ask him if he would join the fight against Hybern. So... Yeah, so they go to the carver because they're like, yeah, let's use the monsters to fight Highburn. And as you mentioned previously, the, the carver has a bit of a, 
a dramatic, creepy, but cool intro talking about Nesta, which obviously freaks everyone out. And then he's like, yeah, if you give me this mirror, which used to belong to my sister, I will fight for you. Otherwise, I'm happy to hide in the prison forever. I think he appears as, he appears to fare as her future son. Cassian, I'm not sure how he appears. I can't remember. Yeah, I don't think it's explicitly said. But yes, the the chapter or the scene kind of ends with disappointment because they're like, if I get this mirror, uh, it will drive one of us crazy. Whoever goes to get it and it's not worth the risk. Mm-hmm. No, actually, they realize first that they need to negotiate with the Kier. Kier. Moore's father. And then it kind of finishes with, right, well, this isn't really going to work. It kind of was a little bit like in the previous book when we went to see him, it was like all caution and like, don't even ask him one extra question. And now suddenly it's like, hey, let's bring him. Yeah, just arrive randomly. Let's just like set him free, like and see what happens. So I know it's the like definition of desperate times and desperate uh, solutions. But yeah, I just thought it was kind of funny how quickly they can uh, change tact. But it was a good idea. Obviously, he seems to be someone worth fearing, but someone with like enough strategy to know which High Lord to to cooperate with. So I, if they had to bring in a monster, and the, he also has that mystery like, ooh, what is his power? And then, you know, having such powerful siblings and stuff. So mm-hmm. it makes sense. So I liked the idea, but it was funny how quickly it became palatable to them. Yeah, I mean, they still kept it a secret from Amran because apparently we don't want to upset Amran by talking about the prison that she spent millennia in. That's but fair. I like the concept, but I worry that we're building him up a lot because my understanding is, by Farah's logic, we have, like, the Illyrians and we have, hopefully, Kier's army. And maybe the High Lords, the other High Lords of Prithian will join in with their armies. But if they don't, then I will set free the Bone Carver and maybe some other monsters. And that should be enough against the whole army of Highburn. So they're obviously expecting the Bone Carver to be really epic once released. But what are they basing this on? I guess the fact that he's in the prison in the first place. And he's like the only one that seems sane enough or reasonable enough to work with. Because mm. like it's it's really bad stuff that has to happen to go into that prison. And mm-hmm. the only people who can do really bad things are usually really powerful people. This is true. But that said, it is incredibly vague because all we've seen him do is scratch bones. Yeah. He seems to know everything though. Yeah. He has psychic powers, but yeah, like it's not quite clear how that will translate to active warfare. Yeah, I mean, it's the same with Amarin. They're kind of talking about how Amarin, the way that she managed to escape the prison is by changing her form and basically becoming a high fae, which kind of put a stopper on her powers. And if she were ever to be unleashed and lose her form, she wouldn't recognize them anymore and she would just massacre everyone. But but how? Like, I, I need specifics, you know? I'm just very confused as to what this means Physically, mm. <laughs> like, yeah. what is she going to do? Who knows? But I really liked finding out that the bone carver is related to the weaver whom we met in the previous book. That was pretty cool. I love her name. Oh, the weaver or like... Striga. Or oh, Striga. Striga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like... Striga. I don't know. Yeah, it's impressive. It's a good name. Strong name. That's, that's Slavic for witch. 
Oh, now I love it more. Well, as you mention it, Kosha, the other one, is actually from, I think, a Russian fairy tale of an like an evil wizard who kidnaps people. Oh, that's cool. Look at Sarah J. Maas doing her homework. I know, right? On everything other than the history of the geography she's circling her entire story on. But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In terms of other bargains, so they want to make the bargain with the carver, but they also, well, Feyre makes a bargain with who we're for now calling the pit monster, because I don't think he has a name yet. (laughs) But Maria, do you want to explain how that comes about? Oh, yeah, I love this. So Farah and Nesta are in the library and completely like almost unrelated seeming. Elaine has made this like prophecy about is it twin crows or twin ravens? Twin ravens mm-hmm. are coming, one light, one dark. And we're just kind of like, okay, Elaine, that's great. What would you like for tea? And then Nesta and. They're so dismissive, aren't they? And then Nesta and Farah are in the library. And suddenly there's a disturbance in the force. And basically, there's like this big bad. And these two um, soldiers from Highburn, the king's ravens, appear and they neutralize Farrah's powers with yet more Feybane. Fantastic that they have so much of it and that she's so susceptible to just getting hit with it. And she can't winnow out. So they have to try and escape. But escaping up is not an option. So Farrah kind of reasons that she'd, you know, there's that f- like that saying, you know, like, Rather the, uh, the like, I don't know, the enemy you know than the enemy you don't or whatever. But she's going for the enemy you don't. Because she remembers that there's something down at the bottom of the, the library in the pit. The pit monster. So she decides that she would take her chances with that instead. So she tries to kind of like lead them away from Nesta. So they get down to the bottom. She helps Nesta escape and then blocks the exit and decides to take them on by herself. And it's kind of creeping around and then beseeches whatever consciousness is at the bottom. Please, please help her. And when it finds out who she is, it's willing to help her in exchange for something, which is a bargain and is pretty effective at helping her. And then just in time, Cassian shows up to swoop her to safety, but not before she's already obviously had to like make a bargain in exchange for her safety. And uh, Cassian brings her and Nesta the rest of the way out. And when Farrah leaves, she's basically made a bargain that in exchange for helping her, this monster would just like some company, which is incredibly cute. You know, it just wants someone to talk to. But (laughs) I really liked that. It was like, it was a good edgy, you know, like reminiscent of the challenges in the first book. And, you know, some of the more exciting action scenes where you're like, oh my God, what's the solution going to be? So I liked it. I also loved it. I felt that the tension was really well built. It kind of reminded me in some ways of, um, you know, the scene in Harry Potter where they're going to get the Horcrux in the centre of the lake. Mm -hmm. And like the camera keeps focusing on the water and there's so much creepy music and you're like, something's going to happen with this water. Mm -hmm. It's like they keep mentioning the bottom of the library and how dark and spooky it is. I really enjoyed it. What do you think, Lucia? I I loved it. I I loved it as as a concept. The only thing is, you know, I've said this before, and I don't know how it works for you guys. We haven't really talked about it, but I kind of struggle picturing things when I'm reading it. So 
Corey has an overactive imagination. She can pretty much picture everything, but I really feel like I almost need like really specific directions as to how to get from point A to point B. So I found it a little bit confusing, the whole layout of the library and how much of a pit is it really, because there still seem to be like bookcases at mm-hmm. the bottom. So then is is there an even more bottom bottom or... Was the beast actually behind the 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 bookcase, or you know, I was a little yeah. bit confused. Is the is the beast corporeal? Because the voice was in her head, like the others couldn't hear it, so it was a little bit confusing. I have to admit, I didn't give it that level of consideration. I was a little bit confused. I think. Sorry, you think, Jesse? No, no, please go ahead. I was a little bit confused as to. In my mind, the library seems to be this giant open cavern and the the like stairs winding down don't seem to be like, say, channels that are in the rock. So I'm a little bit confused as to how she managed to block Nesta's escape because surely these incredibly fearsome warriors can jump over a bookcase. But... Yeah, but it's dark. Remember? Oh, sorry, that changes nothing. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that that bit confused me. Yeah, like how throwing some bookcases, like because then that would suggest that it's like a hole in the wall, but it they're like kind of described as open stairs up and down earlier, and then also mm-hmm. yeah, like what are what are these bookshelves doing at the bottom? Because surely nobody's coming down here. So I was like, maybe it's like the really like. The useless old crap that no one wants anymore. They just like threw it at the bottom. And that's why there's bookshelves down there. And I think that creature, like, I, I don't think we're supposed to know what it is really mm. yet. Yeah, I think that's part of the um, tension. Yeah. It's the unknowable spooky thing in the dark. Yeah, because quite melodramatically, we find out that Cassian was once dared by Reese to go down yeah. to the bottom of the pit and see what's there. And even now, centuries later, whenever the pit monster is mentioned, Cassian still goes white and doesn't speak for half an hour because he's so <laughs> traumatized by whatever he saw. Yeah, what do you think he saw? Like, as in, not specifically, but like, do you think I have this thing where, like, I think it showed him his worst nightmare, whatever that may be? I think that works best as an explanation for Mm. why it would freak him out so much so maybe it is some kind of a shapeshifter almost kind of like the bone carver and it shows you maybe your biggest fear or yeah i was thinking of pennywise from it you know maybe having not seen it i can't um it takes the shape of what you mean whatever you fear the most so it's just kind of like it's not not scary to anyone Mm -hmm. jess what do you think it is yeah, I assumed it was like, it showed you something really terrifying, where it had some kind of mind control, mind access powers. Mm-hmm. It must, to speak to Farrah's mind. Similar. And it seems to have like, some link or some bond with the High Lord or the High Lady of the Night Court, because it senses... True, it seems to be important that Farrah was High Lady. But yeah, I agree with what Maria said, like, I find it so sweet the thing that he asks for because you're kind of expecting this horrible beast surely he's gonna want i don't know to be set free or like blood uh, sacrifice virgin virgin sacrifice once a month or something you know but (laughs) no he just wants some company he just wants someone to tell him about 
life outside of the pit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's cute. Which is so sweet. So Jess, tell us a bit more about the the mirror that the bone carver asks for. The mirror is called the Ouroboros, and I think we are either to assume or we do in fact find out that it has the snake eating the snake's tail mm-hmm. at the circle of life. Mm-hmm. Here's family is currently the owner of it at the minute, and when Fair's like, oh, I need this, can I have it? He says basically, yeah, if you can take it, dun dun dun. So apparently everyone who looks at it just kind of goes crazy or something, or they give up and they can't do it. So it seems like really not going to be able to obtain this item without sacrifice. Remind me why the bone carver wants it. Like, what is the what is the special thing about this specific mirror? Do we find out? We do. He says something. We don't find out yet. Oh, do we not? Okay. Oh. I, th- I think we find out later that he's like, it is a rare person who can look who, who they are and not run away or something. I think that comes later. But I'll also, don't don't we find out that it belonged to his sister, Striga? Yes. Yes, it yes. did, yeah. So, like... But he doesn't say why that's his price. But, I mean, if it belonged to his family, then you're probably like, oh, that's just family drama. He said that she could use it to, like, see across the world somehow in her black castle. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it must have some kind of power. You might be right. Maybe I thought that it was already explained because he's really insistent that this is the the only thing that he will take as payment in exchange for his Mm -hmm. help. Uh, So evidently it must be really powerful, but I don't really know why yet. So it's in Kier's possession. So that means we have to go back to the Court of Nightmares and we... Once again, everyone kind of gears up to play act that they are these horrible creatures who don't care about anyone and they're going to come in and torture you and or potentially put on like a sexy show on the throne, (laughs) you know, one or the other. (laughs) Then we get a bit of a plot twist because Reese has foreseen that Kier will be reluctant to provide him with his army. So he has brought in Eris, who is the crown prince of the Autumn Court, um, also known as Lucian's older brother. And Maria, do you want to tell us about the history between the Night Court and Eris and why this is a big boo-boo? Yeah, so Eris is a is kind of a forbidden subject because Moore was betrothed to Eris by her family, not particularly, you know, by her consent, because how powerful she was, was obviously very attractive for like selling her off. And Eris being the eldest son of the the current High Lord of the Autumn Court, it was kind of assumed that he would take power. So it's a really like advantageous thing for her parents to have their daughter having a foothold in the autumn court as like you know the like partner to the high lord future high lord so that was all well and good but more really didn't want this and so to avoid actually being married to eris she went and sullied herself by being with cassian instead then obviously her value was gone and she was basically no longer worth anything in her family's eyes because all of the Illyrians are half-breeds and Cassian is the lowest of the low. He has no title or anything. And so her family 
nailed a note to her and dumped her on the border of the autumn court telling Eris that she was his problem now. Mm-hmm. He came across her and left her. So there's a lot of tension between anyone who cares for more and Eris because, yeah, that was kind of a messy affair. And so as far as we're concerned, especially with everything that went down with Farah in the first half of this book, Eris is the bad guy, like Billy Eilish would say. So now he's just rocking up on Ryson's request. Uh, so yeah, we're a bit like taken for a, taken for a shock. Mm-hmm. But it was a pretty weird thing to sweeten the deal for Kier. Like, if he's no longer going to marry more into the family, like, why is he still desperate to make some kind of alliance with Eris? It's a bit unclear. I also was pretty upset that they decided to let the terrible evil people of the Night Court come to visit Velaris. Even if we later find out that they're not going to be shown any hospitality, I still felt like it was a bit of a what. And then, like, it's also kind kind of that Reese is reaping what he has sown with breaking Care's arm before. Like, why did he think he would never need to deal with this man again and somehow need to beg him for help if, you know, say there was a war or something they all happened to be planning for? So you think that Reese was kind of a bit short-sighted? He shouldn't have maybe... Oh, completely. Okay. I think he lost his temper and his good sense for a moment. I just wonder, like, if even if he hadn't, if Kira would have been a more approachable. Not the, obviously, yeah, he like he dug a hole, but then I wonder if Kara would have like agreed to help him anyways. True, but he certainly didn't do himself any favors. No, he didn't. Yeah, I kind of get the feeling that irrespective of Rhysand's behavior before when he broke Kira's arm or arms, I don't remember if there were if he broke both of them. Like it seems like there's so much hatred and resentment between, you know, the the inner circle and the court of nightmares. I doubt that Kier would have been particularly helpful, even if that hadn't happened. And he seems to be really resentful of the fact that Valeris exists and he doesn't have access to it. So as soon as he found out that Valeris existed, I think that would have been reason enough to be difficult when Reese would come asking for help. I also am... I don't want to make light of what happened because obviously it was... You know, we all agree it was horrible how... Kier and his wife treated more. But, you know, that was 500 years ago. They deal with them on a regular basis, it feels to me. And yet every time they go to the Court of Nightmares, it's like this big thing where everyone needs to mentally prepare themselves from some huge showdown that never really <laughs> happens. Like, like they go there and Kier has to do what they say anyway because... Reese is the High Lord, so where is all this drama coming from? <laughs> They're, yeah. You know? Yeah, I think, like, surely Reese could literally just break his arm this time and be like, if you say no, I'll kill you. Because he's already given more permission to kill them just for her own, you know, exactly. vengeance. Why not let it actually be for something? Like, I don't understand what the point is of, like, I know that like there are, there have been like worse people than Kier, but there probably have also been better people because Mor was born there. So I don't understand why he doesn't just threaten them or coerce them. I don't know why he has to 
it's not like with the queens where there's like a bargain involved like he he should just like manipulate him or mind control him like yeah I, yeah also though yeah, on the heiress sorry no you go yeah i just wanted to quickly say i completely agree with what you just said like more is a shining example of the fact that good in quotation marks high fae can be born into the court of nightmares so reese and every and all of his friends immediately assuming that everyone in the court of nightmares is evil because they are from the court of nightmares is extremely hypocritical because that's what everyone in prithian thinks about them and yeah. evidently they are not bad so yeah. why do they assume that everyone in that under mountain place is also evil maybe there are some really nice friendly people there who just want to go outside every once in a while yeah and like maybe they have like a facade for there as well but it's pretty assumptive and i actually wanted to like extend that as well because while eris was still in the picture i was wondering mm. as mm -hmm. well like i mean even just under the mountain the things that Riss did to get by or like he turned over an innocent human not realizing that it was an innocent human but he did it and he like cracked mines left right and center out of what was like mercy and that's totally okay but like eris chooses to leave more injured on the border of his lands rather than bring her in and kind of expect accept responsibility for her and now we're supposed to think he's evil as well because he comes from a group of unsavory people too it's the same hypocrisy being applied again that like you don't know the story but like this time it happened to one of our people so that person has to be the bad guy at it's just a bit hypocritical all around that they're kind of assuming anyone that's not in the club is bad. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it feels like Sarah J. Mass is setting up Eris to be not who he appears to be because... Oh, for sure. He's, he's the evil guy, but he's secretly good. Like Chris. Yes, exactly. We just haven't had, you know, a chapter 54 and a chapter 55 from A Court of Mist and Fury but from Eris's POV. So hopefully yeah. maybe in a later book, he will become a bigger part of the story and we might find out what actually happened from his side when all of the horrible things were happening to Moore. Yeah. So it does seem a bit short-sighted, even though I can understand it because obviously Reese, Cassian and Asriel all love Moore and Moore is amazing. But... She didn't want to be married off to, to Eris, but why is everyone assuming that Eris had any choice in the matter of marrying more? Like, it was obviously not a love match. It was a match between courts that was decided by the high lords and had nothing to do with, with more and Eris as beings. So, yep. yeah, bit short-sighted. But, um, so are you hoping that Eris is going to be a Reese kind of character? As I just think he good. will be. I'm not necessarily... Well, actually, like, as well, everything we've seen about him, like, so we find out, don't we also find out that, like, he didn't want to torture Lucian's former lover and he was the one who sent word to Tamlan for, like, Lucian to be rescued at the border. So we're getting hints that he's actually gone out of his way to help when he didn't have to and it doesn't seem to have served him at all so i just think that uh 
that we're, we've got the Easter eggs. I don't know if I want him to be, but that he will be one of those, oh, I was good all along characters. I completely agree. Like, it's, he's obviously being set up here as in cahoots with the, the bad people, the sneaky people of the Autumn Court. But yeah, clearly he seems to be a free thinker who maybe has um, had to make his difficult choices, some difficult choices of his own. But I also agree with what Maria said before. Like, I don't really understand what this alliance between Eris and Kier at this point of the story is actually about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. An alliance against whom? Who is Kier allying himself with Eris against? And why? And why? Yeah, well. If he wanted to fight back against Reese, Eris is going to support him? Or why would Reese do that? Facilitate that, yeah. (laughs) Because at least for Eris, Eris wants support from the Night Court that if he ever makes a move against his father to become the next High Lord of the Autumn Court, he will have support from Reese and everybody else. So I can understand his motivations, but Kier's motivations are don't make any sense to me whatsoever. Maybe that he wants to have like two High Lords owing him is the only one that I can kind of figure out that like also I guess if Eris manages to reach High Lord that he'll have, like, his ear. But yeah, also, like, Reese's, don't worry, there's going to be, like, terms and conditions for whenever Kier wants to visit mm. Valeris. Like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. oh, no business is going to give them, you know, service. It's like, I, okay. Or what if they do, like, what's going to be the punishment? You serve these people and you have to pay a fine? Like, what? It, it's kind of impractical. In practice, ridiculous. Kira is only doing it out of spite. He only wants to, like, go there because they don't want him there. So I don't think he'll care if he doesn't get served his mulled wine or if he can't buy whatever weird piece of art in the, like, rainbow quarter. So it's kind of like he's already won. Terms and conditions will not faze him. Hmm. He will just click agree and yeah, not read them anyway. Okay, uh, is there anything else you want to talk about in terms of like Eris and the nah. Kier and all those peripheral characters? Yeah, I don't think we have an, anything else really from them in this part to to go on. So then maybe we can move on to our final talking point, which is the attack on Adriata. Adriata. I like the first the one. The city... the city in the summer court so we after we come back from the court of nightmares you know we have this emotional scene between Moore and Reese and Moore feels really betrayed by the fact that Reese brought in Eris and then they're also planning to have a meeting with the other high lords of Prithian to discuss you know strategy against the king of Highburn and see if anyone's going to join the night court in their battle against the king. So they've sent out invitations and a few courts have already gotten back to them, but the summer court has not yet. But then we find out that the summer court is under attack by the king of Highburn. So Jess, do you want to tell us about what happens then? Therian has sent Amran a warning. We don't really know what this warning is, but we learned that the summer court is under attack. Amran obviously goes and tells everybody else, and they're like, yeah, we're going to go help them. Grace, Cassian, and Azrael, they all disappear off to the Illyrian Mountains to get everything ready, and then they arrive. Reese winnows the entire army in, like, the length of the country, basically. 
and then uh, in his mind to mind, he gives Farrah the signal, and then her and Moore arrive in, and then it's very much like action movie sequence of killing a lot of people. Uh, there's a lot of violence and blood, and yeah, then at the end, when Farrah and Moore are kind of having a little break. <laughs> Fair goes into Reese's mind to see what the crack is with him, and he, as it turns out, has essentially tracked down the King of Highburn on a, a ship um, at, I guess, the docks or the bay or whatever of the summer court of Adriata. Maria, how did you like this part of the, the book? I had I liked it, and I, I also was a bit annoyed by it, because, once again, like, Fair is just out of nowhere, this pro fighter, because obviously most, like, all of it that we see up until when she joins Risan's mind is from her perspective. So we're not really seeing much of what's going on. But like, it's just one of those scenes where like, you know, Farah's been told that she needs, you know, like a lot of basic training, but she can still somehow go into these active war zones and just, you know, be a pro sometimes. But then also it seems like she has all this power and she's not really utilizing it, but she's also like, oh my God, such a pro and it's contradicting itself. It's also a bit annoying that like we get the whole like St. Farah protecting the servants angle again. That's like, we can't, Yeah. <laughs> like she's just so perfect, you know, like we, we get it. Like you're great. Maybe you could save the selfish people just to, to fully round out your character. No, I liked it. Like, cause it was obviously nice to, to get, I feel like there's so much tension built with Hybern that it's nice to get a little bit of a crack at them just to like release a bit of it, you know, that like you get to fight back rather than have it hanging over your head. Mm -hmm. But it's still a bit like unrealistic, I guess, that this is the like dreaded feared army and she's just like doing fine. Mm. I don't know. What did you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I think my main issue with it is the fact that it's, as far as I understand primarily hand-to-hand combat. Like she's fighting against the army with her swords and her daggers, not so much her powers. So Mm. yeah, I agree. Where did this sudden martial arts skill come from? Like I understand she's been training with Cassian, but Cassian has been fighting for over 500 years. Feyre has been learning to fight for a couple of weeks, maybe months if we're being (laughs) generous. But she mm-hmm. can go toe-to-toe with more against hordes of warriors yeah. from the King of Highburn. And she has barely a scratch on her by the end of it. It seems a little bit unrealistic. Yeah. She's just that good. She didn't even bring in the water wolves. You know, where were they? <laughs> in summer and everything. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I guess they're still trying to keep it a secret that she has all these abilities from the other High Lords. So maybe that's why she wasn't using her powers. I guess. I guess, though, like, Highburn already knows, right? Because, like, Tamlin knows and Tamlin's paired with Highburn, so... Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Jess, what did you think of this scene? I actually really liked it, despite the fact that, as we've said, there were a few ridiculous things. Mm-hmm. Once you got your mind past those, I really enjoyed it. Full of action, a lot of tension, a lot of just, like... Fast-paced action. Mm-hmm. I I liked it. Did you think that the King of Highburn was actually there, or? Goodness, no. I thought that was a bit like. Did did he seriously believe that? Like he somehow the man who was like the master of mind control didn't sense that there was no mind to control because he wasn't actually there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I thought that was pretty naive of Reese to to think that the King of Hybern would uh, just randomly show up. Yeah, to... also to just arrive there without your full power, no backup. Mm. Naive. So then we have the fallout of this battle. They win. Okay, they manage to fight back against the King of Hybern, but you would think that maybe Tarquin, the High Lord of the Summer Court, would be grateful for their help, but if anything, he seems to still be really bitter about the fact that they stole half of the book from him, and in his eyes, Feyre bringing down Tamlan's court from the inside is what led to the King of Hybern actually attacking the Summer Court, because according to Tarquin, everyone is now coming to the Summer Court via the Spring Court, which is a little bit confusing. I think he presents some valid points, no? I mean, yes, but... Well, Tamlan is the one who made the deal with the, like, Mm. king, right? So it's like, before Farah collapsed his court, he had already opened his shores to an invasion. So, like, given that, like, the borders of the spring and the summer court are beside each other, like, Tamlan was the one who brought the, like, hybrid soldiers onto the doorstep of Tarquin by like agreeing to side with him with the like Hybern King in upcoming conflict. So then he's blaming like Farah for collapsing Tamlan's court, but like he kind of did it himself. She just took revenge for being kidnapped against her will. Yes, but nobody knows that, right? Like everyone still thinks that, well, what did they think? They still, I, I don't even know what they think anymore, to be honest with you. I'm just generally confused. We don't know what is public news. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I assume they know, though, because Tamlan has, like, tons of... Like, all the courts have spies. Yes, this is true. So, if something as big as, like, partnering with Highburn, having Highburn soldiers and Highburn high-ranking officials come over, surely that gossip gets around. You would think so. Oh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sure that they know that, you know, delegations from the King of Highburn have come to the Spring Court. My problem with Tarquin's behavior is more the fact that, you know, looking at the map of Prithian, which I needed to do because I didn't actually know where the courts were in in relation to each other, but I have it in front of me now. And Adriata as a port is nowhere near the spring court. And if, if they have like a naval fleet coming from the island of Highburn, they don't have to go via the spring court to attack them. They are literally across from each other. It's like oh, yeah, Dublin yeah. and Wales, you know? They're there. You don't have to go via yeah, yeah, England yeah. to reach Wales. You can just go directly. <laughs> so it just didn't really make much sense to me. I don't like how ungrateful he is either. Oh, I think he was in a tough moment, you know? Maybe he was just a bit, a bit sharp. Yeah. Looking for nah. people to blame. But I agree, he's nah. pretty ungrateful. And I'm so sorry, Maria, I cut you off a second time. No, I just I was I was just gonna say N R nah. On a scale of one to ten, how cringe was the scene between Farah and Reese in the tent in the middle <laughs> of <laughs> dying soldiers moaning in pain outside of their tent? Yeah, well, I mean, if that if that's not romantic, I don't know what is. That doesn't build the mood. Mm-mm. Yeah, because I think, isn't it specifically mentioned, it's like amongst the groan of soldiers <laughs> dying in the background. They have a 
a sexy moment in the tent, yes. It's completely bizarre. <sighs> yes, it really is. Like, maybe it could work in, like, the heat of the moment in the sense of if they've just come from a battle and, you know, adrenaline is high or something. They're like, we nearly died, yeah. But, but this is hours later, and they're just having a normal conversation, and Reese feels a little bit bad about how he lied to Tarquin and how maybe he's not enough to protect everyone. And so Farah decides, well, I need to comfort my mate. And the only <laughs> way I can comfort him is <laughs> by <clears throat> doing things. Yes, it's... Physical methods. Physical <laughs> methods include involving her mouth. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> no, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't like it. It felt so out of place, so unnecessary. It was like she had a quota of scenes to fit in and she was like, oh, I've already put them in all the normal places. Where can I shove another one? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I didn't like it. So they go back to Valeris because Tarquin doesn't want to have anything to do with them anymore. And they decide that when they do have the meeting with the High Lords, maybe the masks should come off and they should present themselves as they really are so that everyone can see how incredibly amazing resand it actually is and they go back to valeris and you have this scene with nesta who's waiting for them to come back and she keeps asking where cassian is <laughs> and why is jess giggling <laughs> i'm just laughing because everything to do with nesta she's like two character arcs she's really mean she likes elaine and she really doesn't like cassian well that's three but like Everything about Nestor revolves around one of those three things. I mean, are we saying that any other character is particularly well-developed? Like, Feyre's whole thing is, I like to paint. I love Reese. You know, you really got me there. <laughs> I'm just like, it's always Nesta, and it, like she only ever asks about Cassian. Because she doesn't like him, but she, right? Because she doesn't like him. Yeah. <laughs> That's why she's concerned about where he is. <laughs> yeah. She seems a bit socially awkward sometimes, actually, especially with mention of Cassian. Is she? Is that how you're reading it? I mean, like, obviously she's incredibly rude, but sometimes it comes across in the way, like, she just responds to things with, I don't care, and just seems to look the other way and not know how to not have a conversation in a normal way. Mm -hmm. I think it would be socially awkward for you to be talking to her, rather yeah, than that she's... she's work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she doesn't seem uncomfortable, but I feel like if you're talking to her, you'd be dying inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I always read it as she just decides whichever person she's talking to just isn't worth her time. Like, I'm just not gonna, just not gonna with you. Can't be bothered. Yeah. Unless it has something to do with Elaine, as you've said, yes. In which case, all bets are off. And speaking of Elaine, we finish off this section of the book with... Elaine perhaps starting to heal a little bit because she's now at least leaving her room and gaining some important life skills and is learning how to bake and make bread. <laughs> so, you know, progress. She's spanning out from the plants. It's great. Like, more than one hobby. Yes, yes. Big. One questions why she didn't learn to do this when they were starving. But, um, you know, yeah. better late than never. Nah. Yeah, yeah, because now, you know what, like Jesse said, like, Nesta has three things, now Elaine has three things as well, right? Being boring, plants, and bread. 
Yes. Well, she also has, do I like Lucien because he's my mate? Or who is this Azriel guy with the shadows? Like, he seems kind of mysterious. Uh, and... I thought that was boring. <laughs> <laughs> I put that in the boring category. Fair. Harsh. Okay. Harsh. I think we've reached the end of this section yeah. of the book. Is there anything else you want to mention that we hadn't covered yet? No, I think I, that's everything that's happened, really. Mm -hmm. Jess, is there anything else? I don't think so. I think we just got a lot of setting up of things to come. Yeah, there's there's a lot of world building that's happening in the background that we haven't really discussed. Like, there's a lot of talk of Dracon and Miriam, who were friends of the Inner Circle back in the original war. And they keep popping up in conversation because we're hoping that we can find them and they will help in the fight against Hybern, but they seem to have gone missing along with all their people. So that's a bit of a mystery. So what do you think is happening there? Like, do you care or not so much about Dracon and Miriam? Yeah, I don't think they have like, um, like, it's kind of a, a story. They don't have a very physical presence yet. Mm. So obviously... As a reader, if they've been mentioned, of course they're going to show up, you know? Like, it's, like, so obvious that, like, she's not going to waste ink on a complete, just, like, red herring. But, yeah, like, they don't, like, there's no kind of, oh, they'll be really useful because they'll bring X, Y, or Z. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, like, they'll show up. That'll be that. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I haven't really... You don't really care about them that much, really, to be honest. As Marie said, they're just characters in a story. Mm. They mean nothing to us yet. Yep. They just kind of are plot-dropped every now and then. I agree with you. I am pretty sure that they're going to come up again. Like, they must come up again. Otherwise, why are we talking about these randomers? And Jurian yep. wants to find Miriam as well. So he hasn't shown up for a while, but I'm sure he'll be back because, of course, he will be. But, yeah, I agree. We've covered pretty much everything so i think this is a good place for us to end the episode and next time we're going to be talking about chapters 41 to chapter 60 of a court of wings in ruin so until then thank you again ladies for joining me and i'll talk to you next time bye talk to you next time bye thank you for listening if you'd like to know more about us and the podcast visit our website at readingmaterialspodcast.com we also publish additional content, including blog posts around the world of books and our thoughts on the topic. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at reading.materials.podcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at readingmaterialspod. Until next time, keep reading. Are we all wearing blue jumpers? I'm wearing a blue t-shirt, but yeah. Everybody in blue. Is that because the third cover is blue? No, it's it's... It's green. I know, I didn't get the memo about dressing according to the cover colour, but... Uh... Well... I don't think we all wore red anyway, so it doesn't matter. The edition that I have is pink, because I have the new covers. I don't have the old ones. So... Mm. Uh.